0: Scripture today comes from Matthew seven verses twenty one through twenty three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, it's great to see everyone. Those of you joining us in person, especially those of you joining us online on this Super Bowl Sunday, it's a great day for our country as we celebrate football, but it's also a great day for our church because we also celebrate football. We use this ball to remind us about those fundamentals. So, all throughout the day, this should be a day where the church is really focused on the fundamentals. Um, And we've been learning about those fundamentals from Jesus himself, really going all the way back to August as we've been focused on this Sermon on the Mount. And this Sermon on the Mount, it just is heavy hitting every single week. And that's why we say that it's like Jesus is turning our worlds upside down. And he does that week in and week out for us in so many impactful ways. Because the things that the world prizes, God despises. And the things that God prizes, the world despises. And that's why we often feel so out of place It's because we're not made for this world. God is shaping us for his kingdom. Now we're in the final three sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is now speaking to this issue of final judgment. And all three of these sermons, these next three sermons kind of hang together. Now we kind of stuck our toe in the water on this topic last week as we looked at false prophets. And today, as you heard Elijah read for us, The focus now turns to disciples, and that's all of us. So these next three messages are directly for those who would call themselves Christians. There's a ton in here. So let's go ahead and ask the Lord's help, and then we're going to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Lord, the giver of life, help us, we plead. Convict us. Cut us to the heart, call us to repentance. We ask, seek, and knock for the Holy Spirit to wake us up to the truth of the word that you have for us today. Bring us into that everlasting relationship with our Lord and Savior that we long for. Help us take our eyes off of ourselves and place them squarely on Jesus Christ. It's for his glory And in his mighty name we pray, amen. So these are perhaps the most solemn words found in all of Scripture. They go far beyond being unsettling. If these words don't bring us to our knees as Christians, I don't know what will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Can this really be true? Can we sing Christian songs, pray Christian prayers, go to church every Sunday morning, receive communion, baptism, go on mission trips every summer, help out at the local food bank, tithe, and still hear those words on the great day of judgment, I never knew you. Could we have lived an entire church life of self-deception, never having a personal relationship with Jesus? Could we be among the many? Notice it doesn't say few. I hope and pray that this text has our undivided attention this morning, because it has had mine for the last couple of weeks. It's sobering but absolutely vital for all of us to wrestle with. If you think about it, there are essentially four types of people out there. The first category, those who do not believe they're going to heaven and they are not going to heaven. They outright reject Jesus as their savior. Then there's category two, those who do not believe they're going to heaven, but they are. They are among the lost who will one day be found. Then we have the third category. Those who believe they are going to heaven, and they are. And that's where all professing believers would like to find themselves. And then we have this fourth category. Those who believe they're going to heaven, but they are not. And this is the case that Jesus teaches us on in the text today. So sadly, there are many professing. Christians sitting in pews all over the world this morning who are in category four. Because the truth is, there will be a day of judgment for us all. And according to Jesus, this is how it goes down. So this truth must shape how we live in the here and the now, because none of us want to hear those two dreaded words, I never knew you. So, Jesus goes on to say now, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? So, let's start out by looking at these two words Lord, Lord. There's quite a bit in here for us to grasp, which is that one word, Lord repeated twice. First, as Christians, we're called to make a public profession of our faith, that Jesus is our Lord. And we often do that at baptism. But throughout my ministry, I will say I've heard over and over again these words, I got baptized, I professed my faith when I was young, kind of seemed like the right thing for me to do. After all, I don't want to go to hell. If I say some words, or if I get baptized, and it keeps me out of hell, I'll do it. Of course, that's not what baptism is about. But sadly, that's what many people believe they're doing when they get baptized. And of course, baptism doesn't save us any more than simply professing Jesus as our Lord might save us. Because we see right here, on that day of judgment, many will say, Lord, Lord, they will publicly profess him as their Lord, but not go to heaven. So clearly, what we profess with our lips about Jesus is insufficient to enter God's kingdom. Next, we see that the use of this word Lord is accurate. Jesus is the Lord. That's true. It's a very good theology. He's not just a prophet or a religious teacher. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. So we can absolutely know who he is. We can even know the five points of Calvinism, memorize scripture and doctrines. We can know all about him. But even the demons know about Jesus. They even call him the Son of God. You see, they know all about him too. So apparently, what we know about Jesus is clearly insufficient to enter God's kingdom. Next note, that the word Lord is repeated. Lord, Lord. Now saying a name twice has special meaning in scripture. When Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, God called out to him, Abraham, Abraham. When Moses was at the burning bush, God cried out to him, Moses, Moses. He did that with Jacob, he did it with Samuel and others. It always suggests that the matter at hand is of significance, it's of great importance. We also saw this literary device being used a few weeks ago with ask, seek, and knock. The repetition conveys intensity, emotion, Enthusiasm. So saying, Lord, Lord, conveys strong feeling for Jesus. So we feel intensely about him. We're emotionally moved. When our favorite song is played on K Love, we even tear up, we swallow hard, may even raise our hands in church. So we can be fervent for Jesus, and yet our emotions, what we feel for him, is insufficient to enter. God's kingdom. And then Jesus turns to our actions, prophecy, casting out demons, doing mighty works even in Jesus' name. So this isn't your basic run-of-the-mill Christian living. These are fairly remarkable events, yet they don't help us either. So wait, surely being a pastor, a missionary, volunteering down at the center. It's gotta count for something. Nope, not a thing. Our good works are like filthy rags. So what we do for Jesus is also insufficient to enter God's kingdom. Are you smelling what we're all stepping in here? This is the very definition of a hot mess. What we profess, what we know, what we feel, and what we do, even in the name of Jesus, is totally, entirely, unequivocally insufficient to enter God's kingdom. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Let that sink in for a second. It's shocking in part because the church doesn't teach much on passages like this. It's not much of a crowd pleaser. Attendance will likely be low next week, I get it. But we love you enough to tell you the truth These aren't my words, these are Jesus' words, and we all need to hear them. And actually, when you get over the initial shock of it all, it's not that surprising if you really think about it. I want you to imagine yourself at Heinz Field, the night the Steelers beat the Browns on Monday Night Football, I think it was January 3rd. It was Big Ben's final home game. You're his biggest fan, and you want to express your appreciation to him in the Steelers' locker room afterwards. So you work your way down to that tunnel where the players go in and you start making your case to the guard come on man you gotta let me in i've been a big ben fan for 18 years just look at my facebook my twitter my instagram i know all his stats i even memorize him i bet you didn't know that he only started as a quarterback for one year in high school you believe that i feel so strongly about Ben that I get goosebumps when I see the number seven on a traffic sign. I'd do just about anything for Brother Ben. And then you pull your shirt off and you show him how you've shaved a big B into your back hairs. (laughs) So because of your persistent audacity, the guard asks your name, shakes his head, and goes into the locker room. Comes back out a few minutes later and says, sorry, man, Ben doesn't know you. Can't let you in. You see, you can profess allegiance. You can know all about Ben. You can feel love in your heart of hearts for the number seven. You could even do things for him, shaving his name and your back hairs. But the only way you're getting into that locker room is if Big Ben says he knows you. Otherwise, you're just another fan. You know all about him, but you don't know him, and he doesn't know you. So when you think about it that way, Jesus knowing us is the only thing sufficient to enter God's kingdom. So now, what does it mean for Jesus to know us? Seems like a pretty important thing for us to understand. Well, Jesus is God, and God is all-knowing, so it's not like Jesus doesn't know that we're here or who we are. In fact, he knows the very number of hairs on our head, and as we've learned, he also knows our internal intentions. So he knows us in the sense of having a profound awareness of who we are. Well, the word used for know here is gnosko, and the definition includes this notion of being aware of a person. But it also has another meaning. that's to be acquainted with someone. It holds the same meaning as the word used in Genesis 4, where it says, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. So it's a level of intimacy you might find in a marriage. And of course, Paul goes on to compare the union of a husband and a wife to the relationship between Christ and his church. It's a level of intimacy. So this word, know... Also suggests a meaningful relationship where you are acquainted, you spend time together, you know the other party in an intimate sense of the word, and they by default know you. There is even an element of being chosen because we typically choose to be in a relationship with others. So there's an act of dialogue, conversing often. You know Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus knows you. Now to peel this back even further, what it means to know someone, let's turn our focus now to who's in and who's out. Who's in? As the text says, the one who does the will of God. Who's out? Workers of lawlessness. The contrast between these two doers of God's will, and workers of lawlessness provide several key insights on this issue of knowing someone. So let's start by being sure we're clear about what it means to do the will of God. It's often such a misunderstood topic. It's one of those issues that tends to come up whenever we have a big decision to make. Maybe it's taking another job or deciding whether we wanna marry someone or not. Too often though, We approach this topic with our feelings. But unfortunately, our feelings aren't always a very reliable source. We all know we must be very careful making big decisions like this when we're emotional. But there is a reliable source. And John Piper gives us a helpful way to see it when he breaks down God's will into two categories. The first category is God's sovereign or his decreed will. God does what God wills. He's sovereign. He's in absolute control of everything. When he declares or he speaks something, it happens. At creation, he said, let there be light. There was light. If he says he's gonna flood the earth or he will allow a particular nation to prevail over another, he will do it. It's his will. So for example, if something has happened in the past, God has permitted it. So we can say that his will has been done. Now many of us wrestle with this because some pretty tough stuff has happened in our past. How could that be God's will? But we must be very careful in this space because there's a ton about God that we just don't know. We have finite minds. He is infinite. There's a lot of mystery. There's just a lot of unknown about God. I like what J. Vernon McGee says about it. He says, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. So it's really not ours to question. But if something has happened in the past, God has permitted it because he is sovereign. And of course, before something happens, we cannot know his will unless God reveals it to us. In Scripture, we typically find God reveals that something is about to happen through an angel or a prophet. That was the first type of prophecy that I briefly mentioned last week. The likes of Isaiah or Jeremiah, who heard directly from God about events that would take place in the world. And if the revelation about the future is truly from God, it will happen. So there's no choice in the matter for us. So in matter of God's decreed will, our response must always be to trust and obey him. He's sovereign and he's good. God also reveals his truth to us through the second category, God's commanded will. These are those things He's revealed and commanded to His people about how they are to live out their life. Unlike God's sovereign will, we can absolutely know God's commanded will because it's been revealed to us in the truth of Scripture. Recall from last week that all Scripture is God-breathed. So it's truth because it's from God, the very author of truth. So when we seek to discern, God's will in this sense, we don't need to rely on our feelings or try to guess. I think sometimes we think God sits up there and he's got our plan for, or his plan for our lives and he holds it really close to his chest and life just becomes one big guessing game. We're trying to figure out what he's got planned for us, but there's no need to guess. He gave it to us. We know what his will is for how we're to live out our lives. We got 66 books in the Bible right here that tell us what we should do as part of right and holy living. This is reliable. So knowing his will really isn't the problem. It's doing his will. We must choose to obey him or not. So for God's commanded will, our response is also crystal clear simply to do what he's commanded us. Those who don't obey Jesus, he calls them workers of lawlessness. So it's critical that we spend a lot of time with this because this is where we find out what we're supposed to do. So now here's Jesus at the conclusion of this epical sermon that lays out the details of his kingdom. And he basically says this, if you listen to this sermon, but you choose not to embrace the humility of the Beatitudes, or you choose to not eliminate adultery and lust, or eradicate murder and hate for your brother, or you choose to continue to love money and continue to store up treasures on earth or you choose to not forgive your neighbor, to continue to worry, and to judge people to the point of condemnation, or you choose to not ask, seek, and knock for the necessities of God's kingdom, for the Holy Spirit, and then to turn and depend on Him, then I never knew you, because you didn't do my Father's will, as is found here in Scripture, You were a worker of lawlessness. So this really all boils down to one word, obedience. Responding in obedience to what God instructs us in scripture. As John writes in the words of Jesus, if anyone loves me, he will keep or obey my word. You see, we demonstrate our love for Jesus by obeying him, following his commanded will, in scripture so hopefully now we can see how this word "know" is so carefully linked to the whole obedience thing if you know Jesus then you see his goodness his love and his holiness his beauty is beyond measure you see what he's done for you by dying on the cross for your sins So he's your Lord, which means he's your master. And you're his servant, obsessed with pleasing him more and more. You love him, so you obey his commands. That's what it means for us to know him. Now, everyone's been paying close attention. Got a lot of eyeballs today. That's good. Sometimes you see the top of heads. But I want us to focus even more right now because we gotta be 100% crystal clear on this next point. We need to be very clear about how this all works, especially the timing of things. As we all know, our situation is pretty dire. We're enslaved to sin and at enmity with God. And the only solution to this sin problem is Christ's blood shed on the cross, period. When we respond to God's call for us to repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus, we're justified. We're made right before our Father by the precious blood Jesus shed. That's it, his blood. We got nothing else. No words, no works, no knowledge, no feelings, not our obedience, not even our faith, though that is the instrument It's simply Christ and his blood alone. Are you with me? When we encounter this truth, we can't help but profess our faith with our words, feel an intense desire to pursue him, gain all the knowledge we can about him and his teaching through the Bible, serve him with our good works, in other words, We can't help but respond to his love for us by being obedient to him. But the minute we think our words, our feelings, our knowledge, our good works, or our obedience have any merit is the minute we flip the order of things and we turn to ourselves instead of Jesus for the solution. And that's an outright rejection of his love. It's a repudiation of his sacrifice. We're still on that wide path that leads to destruction. He was never our Lord or our master, and we weren't his servant. We were simply using religion to build ourselves up. And on that day of judgment, when we cry, Lord, Lord, and we whip out our resume with why he should let us in, he's going to say, I never knew you. And that's the truth that we need to wrestle with this week. Have we been engaged in self deception, resting on something other than Christ's blood? And this is a bit of a gut punch, I know, but fortunately, we got the next two weeks to work on it together. Before we turn to response time, I want to leave you with an illustration that I took from Paul Washer. I think it's very helpful. Imagine that I'm scheduled to preach this morning, but I show up late, and understandably you're a little annoyed for wasting your time. But I finally get here, I come running up the center aisle, and I'm like, guys, I'm really, really sorry. I was on my way to church this morning, and I got a flat tire. I pulled off to the side of the road to switch out my spare, and one of those lug nuts just got away from me and it rolled out into the road. And I wasn't paying attention because I was in a hurry to get here and this 30-ton logging truck came out of nowhere and just smoked me. Now you'd either think I was lying or I'm crazy because it's impossible for me to be hit by something as large as a 30-ton logging truck and not be fundamentally changed. I wouldn't look like this. Now, ask yourself, what's larger, a 30-ton logging truck or the creator and sustainer of the universe? You see, as professing Christians, each one of us claim to have had an encounter with the God of the universe. But if our lives haven't been fundamentally changed, there's just no evidence of an encounter. It's either a lie or we're crazy. we got a good story. We can even tell people about our story throughout the entirety of our lives. We call it our testimony sometimes. But it is incredible because it isn't true. If you met Jesus, you know him. And he knows you. If he's your personal Lord and Savior, he's your master. You're going to be changed. You won't be able to help yourself. It won't be a burden to help your neighbor, help out down at the center, do things at the church. It'll be your joy. You won't stand in church when we sing and look down at your shoes waiting for the song to be over. No, you'll join the church in singing praise to Jesus. Oh, you'll still screw up you'll still be selfish, you'll still sin, but you'll also become more Christ-like with each passing day. As you walk with the Holy Spirit, you'll begin to bear his fruit. You'll find yourself taking on that beatitude attitude of humility. You'll reject the urge to take credit for your good deeds, even those done in the name of Jesus. You won't try to justify your acceptance into heaven based on anything other than Jesus' blood and his merits, not yours. He's your master, you're his servant, and you respond by living your life in obedience to his will and his word. You simply can't help yourself because you've had an encounter with the creator and sustainer of the universe, and you're fundamentally changed. That's what it means when we say, Born again into a new life in Christ. And I pray that is what we will spend time praying and meditating on in the coming week. Lord, thank you for your word today. Forgive us for whenever we make our faith about ourselves. Lead us to trust in you, in your sacrifice, and the blood you shed for our salvation alone and in nothing else. May this truth convict us, cut us to the heart, and draw us even closer to you in humble obedience. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace, your love, and your promise that can never be broken. For Jesus' sake, amen.